everybody, this is Brent Kellogg, the pastor of Hillspring Church in Sand Springs, Oklahoma. And this is our podcast. Thanks for taking time to join us today. Our prayer is that this would inspire you, build your faith, and help you take the next step in Christ. Enjoy the message. Do you remember where you were? Like, I, I, I remember where I was. And it's one of those things, like, when a traumatic event happens, you just, you tend to remember those details more. I remember where I was at in fifth grade when I heard the Challenger I was on the radio in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, doing the morning show, and the phone rang, which happened a lot, and my co-host, his mom, called and said, turn your TV on, and airplanes hit, the trade towers, and then just didn't realize, I mean, being in the media, what that was going to do for literally the next three or four days to our lives and our schedules. I never will forget carrying into our TV station, I just heard the news that Rudy Giuliani had requested 10,000 body bags. It's one of those things you remember. And um, we, we remember the pain, we remember the the grief of September 11th, but I also remember the unity of September 12th. I think we as Americans need to pray that we would be the United States of America again, the way we were on September 12th. Let's do that. God, we just come before you. And today as a nation, we, we pause, we remember, we grieve. And Lord, we remember the pain of September 11th, but Father, we remember the unity of September 12th. Lord, that we as the human race could get back there again without the tragedy. That it wouldn't take tragedy to bring people together. Father, that we could love our neighbor. That we could do it because it's the right thing to do and the mature thing to do. Lord, we pray for our nation today. We're so grateful for firefighters and policemen and first responders and our military. Father, that that day impacted so much of their life over the last 21 years. And so God, we just pause for a moment. We know Romans 8, 28 is true. All things work together for good. That moment has changed so much of our country and so much of our personal lives. We reflect. But Lord, we pray again for that unity that was found in those days. In Jesus' name, amen. Speaking of prayer, we're in the middle of 21 days of prayer. In January, we do 21 days of prayer and fasting. And the leading into the fall of the year, we do 21 days of prayer. And feasting, if you want to. Like, I mean, you don't have to fast. Certainly encourage you to do that. If you weren't here first Wednesday, we produce kind of a prayer guide that will help you, like, with something that we're all corporately praying for tomorrow. On Monday, we'll be praying for impact. On Tuesday, we'll be praying for families. On Wednesday, praying for next generation. But something I'm, I'm doing this year, and, and I even preached on revival at first Wednesday, but not, yes, I am praying for revival, but I'm praying God prepare us for revival. Like, let's start there. Like, God, prepare your church. Prepare us as your children. Prepare us for revival. And uh, just the, the whole point, as Pastor Matt explained, is just to take some time intentionally, daily, to stop. Set aside some time. It can be first thing in the morning. It's a great way to start your day, but it have to be. But just, you know, more than just God is great, God is good, let us thank you for this food. Let's just, let's just as the church, let's be diligent about on our daily life of stopping and spending some time Intentionally for prayer, for these things, that you can pick these up at the information booth, but more importantly, that God would prepare our heart for revival. Amen, everybody. Our team that's been off in Africa, they came back. Woo-woo! Glad to have them back today. And like Miss April will say, they went for like seven days without their luggage. I ain't signing up for that trip. You know what I'm saying? Like, you better put a lot in that carry-on book bag. So we are walking our way through the book of Daniel. Last week kind of jumped into. 
just some line-by-line stuff today. We'll continue there in, in Daniel chapter 1. On Wednesday night, as we were headed home from First Wednesday, I, uh, I have no idea what hit me, but it was like Bible quiz time for my poor daughter sitting in the back seat. And I'm like, ah, Gaily Legend. And so Jerry and I just started firing all these Bible questions about who had the coat of many colors and who did God use to, you know, build the ark and so on and so forth. And she, she really answered really, really, really good. It's like, all right, who did God use to, to rescue Egypt out of slavery? And she, this is kind of how Kaylee responds to everything. Like, <laughs> you know, she's kind of, everything's funny to that child. And she's like, Jesus, you know, and I'm like, here's the deal. I have taught my kids, Jesus is the answer to whatever question may happen in life. Amen. And so she was just doing what what her daddy had taught her. So the book of Daniel has several well-known stories that we're going to unpack throughout the weeks to come. And um, Daniel being thrown in the lion's den, we'll, we'll get there. His companions being thrown in the fiery furnace. A lot of people being thrown into things. And so we're going to unpack that. Today's conversation kind of centers around David's first confrontation of conviction, like being pushed on what he believed in. And I'm not sure why you came to church today, but I want you to listen to what I would share this morning with this filter on. I'm preaching under the assumption that you came to church today because you want to get closer to God. Like you came to church today because you want to know more about God. I I don't know. Maybe you come to church just because your friends are here and you enjoy the worship. I don't know. But I'm just telling you out of this series, but specifically out of today, I'm I'm just going to do my best to preach the word believe what I believe that I see in there. And, and here's the deal. When we do that, especially in 2022, when you preach the word, the culture around us would label that as old-fashioned. But, but God's principles work every time. God's ways are the ways we need to stand and build our life on and build our family on. And so I'm just going to tell you, I'm going to say some things that at times is going to bring tension in the room. I'm not doing that to pick fights or bring tension. I'm bringing, doing that to, to shine a light on God's word and let God's word shine a light in our heart because I'm going to operate under the assumption that you're here because you want to get closer to Jesus. Amen, everybody? So I want you to listen with that in mind. Last week, we walked through the kings of the nation of Judah, the people of Israel, the Hebrew people, descendants of Abraham, had been split into two countries. There was the nation of Judah, which is who we talked about last week, and the nation of Israel. Judah, if you don't count Saul, King David, and Solomon, Judah had 18 kings. And I walked line by line through those 18 kings. Nine of them, the Bible describes them as they were like, they did what was pleasing in the eyes of the Lord, meaning they used their resources, they used the government to point people back to God and worship God and live lives that would honor God. There were nine other kings that the Bible describes them as did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. It means they gave in to the corrupt cultures that were around them. And so instead of serving the God of the Hebrews, they would serve the the God of the Assyrians. Or they would serve the God of the Hittites. Or they would serve these other pagan gods. 2 Kings 24, which correlates to Daniel chapter 1. Okay, same time in history. It says, these disasters happened to Judah, the the nation of Judah, because of the Lord's command. He decided to banish Judah from his presence because of the many sins of Manasseh. That's interesting because Manasseh was one of the kings of Judah. He actually was 90% evil, but at the end he kind of came around. There's a verse that says he saw that the Lord truly was the Lord. But Manasseh was a bad dude. He killed a lot of innocent people to promote his political agenda. And so what were these disasters? The disasters were that that God removed his covering. 
Like, hey, the deal was, if you'll abide by biblical principles, it's not that you won't have bad days, but you'll be my people, I'll be your God, and, and I'll protect you. Well, they like, no, 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 we want to go serve Baal. We want to go serve these other gods. So God's like, all right. And so he removed his protection. And so that allowed for the Egyptians, who were one of the superpowers of the time, to invade them and conquer them. And then the Babylonians came on the scene, and they conquered the Egyptians. And then the Babylonians conquered the nation of Judah. By the way, the Babylonians are modern-day Iraq. That's that part of world geography and world history, okay? To prevent rebellions... Like if they would come in and conquer the nation of Israel, the nation of Judah or nation of Elam or whatever, to prevent those people from rebelling, they would demoralize them by making their leave their homeland. All right, you people of Judah, you're going to move over here to the land of Elam. And all you people here in Elam, you're going to move up here to Israel. And all you people in Israel, you're going to move over here. And it, it literally was just demoralizing and literally spread them out all over the Babylonian kingdom to keep rebellions from collecting and gathering it was just a way of their political power. The only people that they let stay were the poor, the uneducated, the unhealthy. People that did not have the capacity or the leadership ability to build any type of rebellion against the Babylonians. Okay? One other thing is they would take the best and the brightest, the smartest, the strongest, and they would actually take them to Babylon to serve in the Babylonian Empire. And that's what you're going to see today in Daniel chapter 1, that some people got plucked, if you will, and then they, they were shipped off to go serve as servants in the Babylonian Empire. Daniel chapter 1, verse 6. I'm going to read quite a bit here, do a little bit of explaining as we go. Daniel chapter 1, verse 6. It says, Daniel, Hananiah, which is, it's a, it's a man, Mishael, that's also a man, and Azariah, they were four of the young men chosen all of the tribe of Judah and the chief of staff renamed them with these Babylonian names. So I know you've got your Hebrew name, but we're going to give you a, a new name. So Daniel was called Belshazzar. His street name was Shazzy. What's up? No, I'm just, I'm just, that's not real. If you're new, there's not a more mature pastor coming out to preach. No, this is, is me, right? Okay. Hananiah was called Shadrach. Mishael was called Meshach. And then Azariah was called Abednego. Those names we recognize, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? I want to stop here for, for just a second. It's a very common practice to disrespect you, to disrespect your culture, to demoralize you. But more importantly, to demoralize your identity in your culture, they would rename you. They would change your identity. And so, like, if you just read that, Daniel became Belshazzar, Hannah and I became, like, you don't catch what's going on here. But let me, let me go into what the names actually mean. Daniel in Hebrew means God is my judge. Shazzy, Belshazzar, actually the Babylonian name that they gave him, it meant Baal's prince. Well, well Baal was a false god. Baal was a god of Babylonians. So they not only changed his name, they said, no, 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 no. you don't serve your god. Now you're going to be Baal's prince. Hananiah in Hebrew means beloved by the Lord. Oh, that, that is such a beautiful name. Shadrach, which was the Babylonian name they gave, said you've been illuminated by the sun god. Mishael in Hebrew is like, who is like or who is as God? Meaning you're created in the image of God. That's beautiful. Meshach said, no, you're created in the image of Shak, who was a goddess of Babylon. Azariah in Hebrew means the Lord is my help. The name they gave him, Abednego, means you are a servant of Nego or Nebo, N-E-B-O, who was the Babylonian 
God. So they, they, all of their names had spiritual meaning in Hebrew. And they're like, no, 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 you're not going to be identified by that. Now we're going to name you in honor of our Babylonian gods. Okay, so Daniel chapter 1, verse 8, it says, but Daniel, and I love this verse. Daniel determined, Daniel, some of the older translations say Daniel purposed in his heart not to defile himself by eating the food and wine that was given to them by the king. And this morning we're going to spend some time just unpacking what's going on there. He asked the chief of staff for permission not to eat these unacceptable foods. Verse 9, now God had given the chief of staff both the respect and affection for Daniel. But he responded, I'm afraid of my lord the king who has ordered that you eat this food and wine. If you become pale and thin compared to the other youths your age, I'm afraid the king will have me beheaded. Verse 11, Daniel spoke with the attendant who had been appointed by the chief of staff to look after Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And he said, let's just make a deal. Please test us for 10 days on the diet of vegetables and water, Daniel said. Verse 13, at the end of the 10 days, see how we look compared to the other young men who are eating the king's food. Then make your decision in light of what you see. The attendant agreed to Daniel's suggestion and he, okay, we'll do that. He tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, Daniel and his three friends looked healthier and better nourished than the young men who had been eating the food assigned by the king. So after that, the attendant fed them only vegetables instead of the food and wine provided for the others. God gave these four young men an unusual aptitude for understanding every aspect of literature and wisdom. And God gave Daniel a special ability to interpret the meaning of visions and dreams. And that'll come into play in the the coming weeks. The story, by the way, is where we get the idea of fasting sometimes. Or the idea of Daniel fasting. In January, I mentioned earlier, we have 21 days of prayer and fasting. And a lot of people will just fast. And the idea of fasting is to give something up. Like push pause on something. Maybe even, if you want to go there to sacrifice, just for, to set aside just something in my heart to connect closer to God. And a Daniel fast is where you give up meats and sweets. And you eat fruits and vegetables and nuts and drink water and juices, right? And so really when I was planning out Daniel, I thought, how can you not preach on on Daniel fasting until I got into studying it? Like this really would be a great place to talk about fasting and the power that it brings to our life and the clarity it brings. I'm just telling you, ever facing a big life decision, do I change jobs? Do I start the business? Do we, you know, whatever that decision may be, I would encourage you to fast and pray about it because always Towards the end of that 21 days of prayer and fasting, I always look at Jerry and I'm like, why don't we do this more? Because it just brings you closer to God and just brings a clarity in your pace of thought. And that's what's interesting. You and I, we have the freedom to fast whenever we want to. Yet we don't. And Daniel had to go and get special permission just so he could, could fast. So there's a lot going on here. And the title of this message today is actually... The issue is not the issue. Like this is kind of a leadership principle or maybe a counseling or sometimes pastoral counseling principle from time to time. That the issue is not the issue. Someone will get upset and go off like a Tasmanian bottle rocket and they'll get mad over something that everybody else is like, I don't know, it seemed like a really small menial deal. But after you kind of dig in and you discover there's been months if not years of built up frustration and hurt and this response is like maybe, maybe what happened in this moment that triggered this is maybe 
two, three, four percent. So the issue is not the issue. The issue is about something else. It's something that what happened right here just triggered all of this built up frustration. Same thing with Daniel's request to change his diet. Issue is not the issue. There's a whole other conversation to be had here about fasting and the power of, of pushing back on, like just having unfiltered, unlimited everything is not good in our life. And that, that's a conversation for a different day, okay? But this is about Daniel's convictions being confronted by a corrupt culture. In the Old Testament, God gave the Jewish people a pretty specific diet. And there's a lot of reasoning that goes into that. Even Jewish people today will abide by that diet. And maybe you've seen a jar or something that has this word kosher, right? And that means that it's, it, it meets the Jewish dietary restrictions, okay? And, and again, there's a lot of reasons for that. One of those restrictions was make sure that you don't eat food that has been sacrificed to some other god. So it was a very common practice in, in ancient times that they would sacrifice an animal of some type, bull, ox, goat, whatever. And after it had kind of served its sacrifice, they were like, all right, let's have a barbecue. And they would take the meat from that and then people would eat it. Now I understand we as Christians today, a lot of times before meals, we will say the blessing or, or say grace. You know, God is great, God is good. Let us thank him for this food, right? And, and, and so really, when we're praying over our meal, it's not a... It's not being like sacrificed to God. It's not being offered to God. Really what we're doing in essence is almost in advance asking for repentance. You know, like God, would you forgive me what I'm about to do? Because my internal digestive system, I'm about to throw some greasy tacos and enchiladas down in the Lord. And I'm just going to ask you to bless that apple pie so it don't make me fat. I mean, that's kind of what we're doing. I'm going to throw down here, Lord. You know, if you could just turn this big bowl of pasta miraculously as I eat it, could you just make it have the calories of a salad? Turn this taco into a carrot, Jesus, after I taste it, right? You know what I'm saying? No, no, no. When we say blessing over the prayer, some of you go, going, I don't even know what to pray now. You know, like when we pray over lunch, really it's just this, it's a way of stopping giving thanks. God, I thank you that there's food in front of me. God, I thank you for the people that are sitting around this table. I mean, they've seen me eat. It's not pretty. And they love me enough to sit here and have fellowship with me. There's something very special that happens as you break bread together and fellowship together and eat. And so as Christians, we stop and we just say, God, thank you for this moment. But they would literally kill the animals, sacrifice them to their God, and then take the meat of that and go eat it. And God said, listen, make sure you don't eat meat that's been sacrificed to some other God. And this is how he did that. Like, so the principle is don't, don't eat meat that's been sacrificed to another God. But to ensure you don't accidentally do it, don't eat with people that prepare the food that might have sacrificed that food to another God. As a matter of fact, he put one more layer of protection in there because he was talking to the children before they would go in and conquer the promised land. He said, don't even make treaties with them. You give them the opportunity to leave and if they don't, you defeat them in battle. You conquer them. You kill them. You destroy their idols. You destroy their temples. And you don't make treaties with them. Because if you make treaties with them, then you're going to be tempted to have a meal with them. And you don't know if they sacrifice that food to other gods or not. And if you have meals with them, then your kids are going to marry with them. And your grandkids are going to grow up serving that God. Does that make sense why all those layers of protection were in there? I know I'm talking really fast. So I'm going to slow down. I've got a lot to go through. 
All right, so Daniel, <clears throat> he didn't want to risk eating food that had been offered to other gods. But he also didn't want to appear that he was partaking or endorsing the Babylonian culture. He didn't want it to look like he was accepting the Babylonian culture. So it, it, it seems like as the story reads that, that he doesn't want to eat the meats and he doesn't want the sweets. And so, you know, there's this tendency for us to, to modify our diet. And God calls you to do that. That's certainly great. But it, but, but it, but it wasn't about the tacos. <laughs> it wasn't about the apple pie. It was the things that he, he didn't want to eat food that had been sacrificed to other gods. Remember, verse 17 said, God gave these four young men an unusual aptitude for understanding. Daniel had the foresight to see what the Babylonians were trying to do. He saw a couple of things. Number one, he saw that the Babylonians were trying to create resentment among people groups. Because most of the people that had been conquered by the Babylonians were starving to death. At best, they were eating on just basic staples. Maybe a handful of wheat to make little amounts of bread. Maybe they had a goat or two. But most of the people that were conquered by the Babylonians were starving to death. But yet the Babylonians said, we're going to take some of you and we're going to let you eat at the king's table and you're going to eat really, 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 really well. And Daniel understood that they were trying to create resentment among people groups, which would ultimately over a long term create division. That's why he said, I don't want to appear like I'm accepting the Babylonian culture. My brothers and sisters are out there starving so you know what? I'm going to pass on the chocolate cake. He also understood that they were trying to indoctrinate young people. Verse 3. Then the king, the Babylonian king that had conquered them, ordered Ashpenaz, his chief of staff, to bring to the palace some of the middle-aged. Nope. He wanted the young men. And he wanted them from the royal family, the other noble families. He was after young influencers because he knew these guys would be the pace setters. So he wanted to indoctrinate them with Babylonian culture. Young minds are very impressionable. Parents, it's so important that we do our job that God called us to and gave us. It is our God, it is our job to point our children to God. It is our job to ground our kids in the word of God. It is our job to teach them character, to teach them right from wrong. It is our job to build an unshakable resolve in them that will stand for the right things when the time comes. Amen, everybody? And I've been there. I've packed the car, dropped the boy off at college, get in the car, cried a little, and then you just say, Lord, I sure hope I've done my job because now I've entrusted him to go do what I've raised him to do. If you've got little kids, I'm gonna give you parenting advice that I have been known to give this parenting advice to fence posts that were in the field that looked like they were listening to me, right? If your parent, like if your kids are in the home, little kids, I'm, two things, two things that are so simple yet they're so important. Everybody say, I love BK. Y'all getting tired of saying that because I use it a lot, right? I love you. And my kids ain't perfect. But two things that I think are so important to ingrain in your children. Number one, 
Eat meals at the table as a family as often as you can. Eat meals at the table as a family as often as you can with the TV off and the cell phones not present. Because what you're doing is creating space. You're creating a safe place. From the time your kids are little, they, you're just teaching, you're indoctrinating them that when you come to the table, this is where we're going to be a family. And we're not going to let Instagram and Facebook invade that. This is the time that there's a no phone zone. We're going to step in here. And this is the safe place. It's a consistent space where I can talk to you and you can talk to me. If you are so busy as a family that you can't even sit down together as a family and eat a meal together consistently, I'm just telling you that is going to carry massive unintended consequences. Pretty soon, this is what you're going to be saying. I can't even get my kids to talk to me anymore because you did not create consistent, comfortable, safe space for them to talk to you. So since our kids were little, this was how that conversation would go. What was the best part of your day? And sometimes the best part of the day would be, Dora the Explorer, right? And then there's other times it'd be like, oh, a teacher recognized you at school today. Man, that, that, that's awesome. What's the worst part of your day? Other than this right here, right now, that is not a proper answer. Okay? I can't tell you how many times those seem like small conversations, but big moments happen. Like they seem, seem small in the moment. And I love you. I think you're here today because you want to get closer to God. I think you're here today because you want to ground your family in the word. Okay? Several months ago when Roe versus Wade was dominating the news cycle, Landon's off at school. It's Jerry and I and Kaylee. And, and we've let our kids use social media. And so she knows all of this conversation is going around. And so she came to the consistent safe place. And we're sitting at the table and she goes, okay. In her words, she's like, guys, just help me understand what's going on. I said, baby girl, I'm so glad you asked. And it was an opportunity for her to hear the biblical views that Jerry and I believe we have built our life and our family on. And we believe that a fetus in a mother's womb is life. It's not a tissue. And we believe that life is precious. And we believe that as Christians, we should live a moral life in such a way that when you're ready to have a child, you do that in a responsible way and you don't end one out of convenience. So you sit around the table with the TV off and the no phone zone. You're creating a consistent, comfortable space for your kids to talk to you. Eat meals together at the table because you never know what conversation God's going to put you in to indoctrinate your kids with the word of God and biblical life principles. Amen, everybody? And number two, it's gonna sound very self-serving, but you need to raise your kids in church. Well, you're just saying that because you want us here every No, 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 listen. You just need to raise your kids in church. I would love for that to be at Hillspring Church. I want you to understand as a church, we make a major financial investment every year just to be a resource for you. But I want you to understand something. It's your job to raise your kids in the fear and admonition of the Lord. The, the Bible does not say, and the church needs to raise your kids in the fear and admonition of the Lord. It says, parents, you need to raise your kids in the fear and admonition of the Lord. So our job is to be a resource for you. Your job is to train them in the things of the Lord, to train them in the morality of the Lord. Our job is when they come crying, you're not gonna believe how mean my mama is. Let me tell you, sweet girl, the Bible says you need to go honor your mama. Listen, you need to raise your kids in church. If it's here, man, come on, we're going to partner up beside you. If it ain't here, if I've just offended you, find yourself a church 
I was a youth pastor. I know youth pastors. And Matt and Cassie Barnett are simply the best I have ever seen. I don't think you realize how blessed we are as a church to have the longevity of leadership in the next generation that we have at Hillspring Church. I want to say I taught them how to do that, but it's God that gifted them with that. Raise your kids in church. And if it's not here, it needs to be somewhere. Kids that are raised in church, I'm going to just throw some stuff at you. They are less likely to be involved in violence, theft, and vandalism. And they're also less likely to struggle with substance abuse. Well, that's a good idea to take your kids to church. The church creates talking points to facilitate important life conversations, even when they're little. Well, what'd you learn at church today? About Jesus! Well, what'd you learn about Jesus? That he was in the lion's den! Okay, well, you got the story wrong, but hey, we're gonna talk about it anyway, right? The church helps you instill a moral compass. Regardless of denomination, all churches teach that we need to love our neighbor, we need to be generous people, and we need to be people of faith. When you raise your kids, there's a decreased likelihood of developmental problems. I'm not making this up. There was a special report released by the National Survey of Children's Health. I'm going to say it again so you don't think I'm making this up. There was a survey released by the National Survey of Children's Health, and it indicates that church participation by a family unit is associated with lower risk of developmental and behavioral issues. And some of y'all thinking, can I bring them up Monday through Saturday too? No, they're yours at home. We're here on Wednesday night and Sunday morning, right? When you have your kids, when you raise your kids in church, it establishes a healthy routine. We need to have in our rhythm of life, we're going to take a day to rest and we're going to take a day to worship. Having your kids in church helps them create healthy social skills because the other children that they're around don't always get it right but they're hearing the same message of be kind compassionate and love your neighbor church teaches your kids to be compassionate and caring for others it fosters the idea of family that we just as a family we're going to come together and we're going to worship together weekly as a family i could keep going but the value and importance of putting Jesus at the center of your family is essential to raising kids so that they can stand strong when their convictions are confronted. Babylon was indoctrinating their kids. You and I need to be indoctrinating our kids with a biblical worldview and the standard that God is God alone. Amen, everybody? I got you. Thank you. Daniel also saw that they were trying to convince the Hebrews to abandon their boring God. And I think this is happening today in America. Oh, your God's old-fashioned. Your Bible's old-fashioned. You can't eat bacon. That's part of the whole kosher thing, right? You can't sleep around with whoever you want to. That, that's old-fashioned. God won't let you. And the Babylonian culture was trying to make an argument that their way was better than God's way. Look, look at all this food we've got. Where's your God now? <laughs> but Daniel had an unusual aptitude for wisdom. He had the wisdom to see past all that. You ever heard the old saying that a, a way to a man's heart is through season tickets? 
No, really, the Babylonians understood that. And and I think the enemy works the same in Daniel's day that he works in our day, but also think he worked the same in Adam and Eve's day. Connect these dots. What did the enemy use to get Adam and Eve to sin? Food. Food. So how do I stand strong when my convictions are confronted? Daniel chapter 1, verse 8, and I'm just about done. I'm going to land the plane. Daniel, and I love the older translations. This is out of the New King James. It says, Daniel purposed in his heart. That's so important. He purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself. Several translations say Daniel resolved. The first thing Daniel had to do is he had to make up his mind. He had to purpose in his heart. Before he knew what was coming, he had to make the decision. Before he got in the moment, before the heat was on, before the peer pressure was there, Daniel purposed in his heart. That's why coaches in practice will put a kid on the free throw line. Everybody else, get down on the baseline. If he makes the free throw, y'all get to go early. If he misses the free throw, you got to run ladders. Pressure moments. It's pressure moments. Daniel, before he ever got in the situation, he, number one, is he purposed, there it is, he purposed in his heart. He made up his mind before he ever got there. Number two is he protested politely. There's a right way and a wrong way to stand for things. But he protested politely. A couple of verses, 1 Peter 2.12, be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. Then even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior. Like even if you have conflicts, they're going to go, you know what, but I know you and I know your character and I know your life and I know you've never lied to me and I, and I know you've never been unnecessarily violent and, and there's a right way and a wrong way to handle things. Philippians 2.15, so that no one can criticize you, live clean, innocent lives as children of God, shining light, bright lights in a world full of crooked and perverse people. In this story that you're going to read about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're going to get in trouble. They're going to stand strong in a corrupt culture and they didn't protest anything. They didn't burn anything down. They didn't walk out of anything. They just did it the right way. Daniel, in this situation, he understood the situation of the guy that was over him. Listen, I understand if I start to look pale and weak and frail like a Texas Longhorn, I understand that you could be killed. I get that. And so he said, let's do this. Let's play. Let's make a deal. Let's just 10 days. Just just 10 days. The king won't even notice anything, but you and I know what's going on here, and so let's make it do. So just 10 days, just 10 days. I'm I'm, going to eat my diet. I'm going to eat my kosher diet. And at the end of that 10 days, if you're right and I'm wrong, then I will eat everything you lay out in front of me. But if that 10 days that I'm right and I'm healthier and whatever, then you're going to let me eat whatever I want to. And the guy goes, Roger that, 10 deal, 10 days. There's a polite way to resolve conflict instead of griping and complaining on social media. There's a Christ-like way to behave, not protesting and burning down buildings. God's way says, listen, when the time comes that you have to take a stand, there is a right way and a wrong way to do it. Daniel's character and his resolves address the issue in the right way. That's how you create changes, by living your life in such a way that people see you and, and somebody throws criticism on you, it doesn't even stick. They're like jello on the wall. Just live your life in a way that when people look at you, they go, you know what, I know them. So he purposed in his heart, he protested politely, and then finally, 
Daniel's conviction was confronted, he was willing to pay the price. So he wasn't just rejecting food. He knew it was the king's orders. And he knew it was the king's idea. And he knew it was the king's mandate. And he knew he was rejecting the king's menu. He knew the risk. In ancient times, they were brutal. They had no reason to keep him alive. Oh, he don't want to eat food? Go kill him. So he knew the risk for standing for his conviction. This, is, this was the light bulb moment for me. There were hundreds, if not thousands, of young Jewish men who were brought into the care of the Babylonians. And this story is about four, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that did not defile themselves with the king's food. But there were hundreds of them that did. If it cost me my life, I'll have died for what I believe in. There were hundreds that gave into the pressure. And I fear I see that happening in our culture. When the culture says church is old-fashioned, the Bible's old-fashioned, God's old-fashioned, God's a fun hater, he... how will you stand with conviction in a corrupt culture? God, I just pray this morning that just the weight of this, Lord, we'd look in the mirror this morning. How are we doing? How are we doing as a family unit? How are we doing as a marriage? Where, where are we letting the corrupt culture slip into our life? And we start to think about how hard it is and we start about to think, think about the consequences and how much our kids are going to whine and how much they're going to complain. It's easier not to. Daniel, it would have been easier to eat the food. Daniel stood and did the hard things. God, in this room, in this moment, Lord, I pray moms and dads, I pray teenagers, young people, I pray grandparents, Father, that we would be willing to stand strong on conviction in a corrupt culture. Let Daniel's example, let his life, let his message be inspiring and to us. I hope you enjoyed the podcast today. If you did, there's a couple of things I want to invite you to do. First, hit the subscribe button. That way, you won't miss a single episode. Secondly, if this message has impacted you and you would like to help us reach others, visit our website at hillspring.tv and hit the Give Now button so that we can take this message around the world. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time.